It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, I interview Regina, who is a mother of three young children. 
Back in 2017, Regina was working long and tiring hours as a cattle farmer in regional New South Wales when she noticed that she was becoming more and more fatigued. It, however, it was a week out from her wedding, so a blood cancer diagnosis was the last thing from her mind. After a visit to her local GP, followed by a blood test, it actually wasn't long until her GP phoned her to say she had AML. Regina was taken by ambulance to Sydney to start life-saving chemotherapy. Her family instantly gathered around her and supported her through the countless rounds of chemotherapy, radiation and then a relapse as well, and then also a double cord blood stem cell transplant. Regina so openly talks about the toll blood cancer had on her relationship and how she has fought so hard to step back into life. This conversation is filled with such honesty and determination. Hi, Regina, welcome. Hi, how are you, Kate? Good, thank you very much. Very good. Now, look, as we always do with every episode, we like to start off by um, asking the person that I'm interviewing to tell us their name, where they're living in Australia, um, what they were diagnosed with, and who was in who is in their family. So I'm Regina. I live in Dubbo, New South Wales. Um, I'm a single mum of three amazing girls. I am about to turn 35 on Thursday, which is scary to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I've got three beautiful girls. I've got twins, which are a handful at times, but yeah, and then I've got a beautiful 16-year-old. And what and when were you diagnosed? So I was diagnosed in August 2017, one week before my wedding. And um, I was currently living on a property and working and a mum at the time, um, just out from my 30th birthday as well. So, yeah, the doctors had thought at the time that I, being a farmer, that I might have um, had Q fever from the cattle, so I'd just gone in to okay. have blood tests done. Right. And then so, as you say, you, you were, sounds like you were working on the farm leading up to the wedding, a week before the wedding, so I can envision that life was extremely busy, especially with three three young children <laughs> under your belt. Um, so were, what were your symptoms leading up to taking you to the doctor? Uh, so I wasn't my normal self, uh, full of energy. Um, I was actually um, trying to get fit and healthy. So I was looking good for my wedding was my perspective. Yeah. So yep. I used to do uh, a lot of exercise, um, like running up my driveway, that kind of thing, walking mm -hmm. everywhere. And I was finding that my energy levels were actually becoming quite low um, and I'd noticed that I had a lot of bruises on my legs, which mm. I was thinking that they could have been from being in the cattle yards um, or being around cattle because we had commercial and stud cattle, so I wasn't sure whether okay. I'd sustained them from that. And at the time, yeah. I was actually helping my father um, do some things on the farm, and I had to sit down, and I said to Dad this day, I said to him, I said, look, Dad, I said, I've just got – no energy. I don't want to do anything. I just, I'd rather curl up and go to sleep. And he said to me, he said, oh, he goes, I think you need to go to the doctor. And I also had like a head cold as well. So yeah, I just, um, I made an appointment to go to my GP at the time. And I went in the next day to the GP and he said to me, um, could have been a combination of a lot of things being a mum, 
um, I was working on the farm. I was also working in real estate. And You're a busy lady. <laughs> I, I was doing <laughs> planning just, a wedding. Yeah, planning my wedding. Had had a bit of everything going on at the time. So, and he said to me um, that they'd just run blood tests because they thought that the symptoms um, linked to Q fever. So, they run mm. the blood tests, and I'd left um, to go home and go and pick up my children from my mum. And I got a phone call that afternoon from my GP to go back in. So, yeah. And is your GP far from where you, you live, from the station? Uh, so where I was, he was about 20 k's into town. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And to receive to receive that phone call, basically, what, hours after you would have had that blood test, were, did that raise any alarm bells for you when he required you to come back? Or? No, I actually had my 11-year-old with me, so I hadn't picked up the twins from my mum. I had travelled mm-hmm. back in with um, my 11-year-old, um, thinking that I'd just, he was just going to give me a course of antibiotics was, was my theory. Um, yeah. Even though it was late on a Friday afternoon, I went back, it was quarter to six, um, and he said to me that I needed to take a seat. So myself and my eldest, Amber, sat down and he said to me that um, we suspect that you have a case of leukaemia. And I sort of looked at him and um, went, no, I said, that's not possible. And he said, yes, it is. He said, I've got an ambulance waiting at the back door. And Oh, my, my gosh. My daughter just burst out in tears and I sort of – I looked at her and started to cuddle her and I said, no, I said, no, that's not true. And he said, no, he said, I do. And I um, <clears throat> said, no, I'm going to ring my father and my fiancé and they were actually carting cattle into the sale yards at the time. So they turned up and parked out the front of the doctor's surgery with a truckload of cattle on <laughs> well. and came inside and they sat down and – he said, um, we've run uh, Reg's blood tests and we think that she's got a suspected case of leukaemia. She needs to go straight up to the hospital. We've got an ambulance waiting and she's refusing to go in it. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I've got a car out the front. So I got my fiancé at the time to drive me up to the hospital. My dad took Amber to my mum and... Yeah. When I got up to the hospital, I had a wheelchair waiting for me to go in because my blood levels were so low. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm not getting in that. I said, I'm walking. I've got two feet for a reason. And the nurses and doctors were at emergency going, no, no, you need to sit down. I'm like, no, I have two feet. I intend on walking. So yeah, I walked into the hospital and they put me into a bed and they ran more blood tests. The next thing you know, I had two bags of blood running, one in each arm at a time the same time and so your levels were quite low then if that was they were extreme low so from when they took the first lot of bloods to when they took the next lot of bloods at the hospital I was down to 34. (coughs) Oh my word and and I just I I can imagine what you by by you saying no no I'm not going to go into the ambulance and no I'm not going to go into the wheelchair were you in some type of denial of like is this how is this happening is this I kept telling myself it's not real it's not true it's it's not happening Mm. to me I'm young I'm fit I'm only 30 I'm I'm a mum of three beautiful children (laughs) like and and Yeah. yeah I wasn't going to believe it I kept telling them that it was wrong and hmm yeah. 
And, and I mean, with with all of that in, in mind, I think that, and as you said, it, your, your father and your fiance at the time, life, you were in the middle of life. You, you literally had cattle in the back of the yard. You'd gone to do this thing, this blood test, just because you were curious as to why your energy levels were so low. And then to hear the word leukemia, had you ever heard of that before? No. Had, Have you ever heard of leukemia no, before? No idea what it was. So I honestly did not know what it was, but I just kept telling myself I didn't have it. Uh, mm. I was sitting in the hospital actually Googling information on it because I had had no idea what the doctors had diagnosed mm. me with. So I was sitting there and my fiancé had rung his mum and they, they were both there and they were in tears. Like, And I'm just sitting there looking at them going like, why? <laughs> and then I rang my brother because I'm extremely close to him and he drove into town because he actually lives um, just out of town as well. So he drove into the hospital um, that night to come in and see me. Um, the doctors had come mm. and told me that they were trying to stabilise me to fly me to Sydney. Uh, they were waiting for the plane to come in, but they had to get my blood level stabilised before they could actually fly me out. And like I just kept sitting there going, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. You're not flying me anywhere. And yeah. they're going, yeah, it's it's a matter of your life. And I'm just like, yeah. yeah, I was just like, no. And then I sort of did some reading and things and went, oh, maybe I can go to Sydney and have some tests. I, I'll, I'll agree to that. <laughs> And is that because my question was going to be is is that you, you sounded like yes you were in some quite denial which is reasonably so and did someone sit you down and go look this is the situation and if you don't you know go ahead with this treatment or or do go or go or go to Sydney that this is this is almost like this is life and death did someone have that conversation that, with you or that didn't actually happen till I got to Sydney so they didn't actually get me stabilized uh Friday night till Saturday morning so I didn't fly out till Saturday mm. morning um so my mum came up with my eldest daughter Saturday morning as they were actually taking me out to the airport to fly me to Sydney um so they came and said goodbye and stuff like that to me um, and I flew to Sydney by myself and well, my dad and few, how was that? That was actually pretty scary um, to think that I yeah, was going to I Sydney imagine. on my own. Uh, once again, my stubbornness came back into it and I was they went to lie me down in the airplane. I was like, no, I'm sitting up. I want to look out the window. <laughs> so I got, got to sit up and look out the window on my flight to Sydney. Uh, and mm. there was myself and just uh, the couple of um, air ambulances that officers that were on there with me, and we flew to Sydney. And then they, I went into RPA, and they put me went to put me in a wheelchair, and I once again refused, wanted to walk my way through the hospital. And it wasn't then until reality started sinking in to say, "Well, mm. you're in Sydney, you're on your own, got no family." no friends around you yeah. and um, my dad and fiancé. How long's that flight? How long's that flight between um, home and Sydney? It's only an hour and 10 minutes in flight, but it's a five-hour drive by car. So yeah. my dad and fiancé had a five-hour yeah. drive down. Um, so there was no one there with me for, for a good seven hours. Quite some time. And I think, to, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... It would have been one of the first times you didn't have, at that point, your support people around you. Yes, that's correct. So you would have been really quite vulnerable. And as you said, the penny begins to drop a bit more when you're being taken out of your environment and you're 
as you said, the reality begins to sink in. You're not in Sydney. I mean, you're not back at home. You're in Sydney, and all of this information and people are coming at you. Yeah, that that was true. And to fly into RPA like on a Saturday as well, so they weren't actually going to yeah. do anything. So it was basically they were just getting me in there to monitor me, to check my blood levels, to give me transfusions because Dubbo didn't have access to the bloods that Sydney yeah, did. Yeah. Um, Dubbo being remote, um, didn't don't have access to the treatment things that Sydney and that mm. that did. So. It was the option that I had to go to Sydney to get through the weekend to be able to have the transfusions and things that I needed to get through to the Monday morning to have the mm. bone marrow biopsy to find out for sure. Confirm. Yeah. And as a mama too, like you're leaving your babies. Yes. That's... You're le- that would have been incredibly tough. That, that, would have that been was really my tough. first time being away from the girls so mm. it was it was extremely hard but yeah so I had um my dad and fiance um Sam had arrived down to Sydney on the Saturday afternoon and I was allowed out Saturday afternoon to go and have tea with them providing that I returned back to the hospital that night for more transfusions and things and and then Sunday was the same I was allowed out for a few hours to return back um yeah. Then lucky for technology, uh, if it wasn't around for being able to FaceTime the girls, which was really good Mm. to be able to FaceTime mum. The twins only being two at the time, they sort of... Oh, wow, I didn't realise they were that young. Wow, that would have been... They didn't really understand, but they they were great that they could see mum through the phone and that Amber was 11. That was enough. So she, mm. she knew and she could talk to me and things through the phone. So it was great for her um, yeah. and really, really good for her to be able to see mum and talk to mum through the phone. The twins, yeah, it was sort of. And what about for you? It was good for me. It was amazing that I could see my girls. Um, mm. The first, like once I got through the first week, my brother brought my eldest one down, Amber, on the mm. weekend. So I got to see her. Um, yeah. But I couldn't see the twins because of the chemo that I was actually going through. Yeah. Because did you have AML or ALL? I had AML in version 16. Yeah. Yeah. And what, you know, as you say, it took about a week for your child, you know, Amber, to come down. Um, how does how does one navigate that conversation? How did you How did you as a family explain to her what was going on and what was happening to mummy? So we explained that uh, I was actually really sick and that if I didn't stay in Sydney and have the treatment that I was going to have and that the doctors um, said that mummy really needed it, that mummy wouldn't be able to come home. So the doctors in doctors and nurses in Sydney were actually looking after mummy to be able to bring mummy home to the girls. So yeah. um, my dad and my fiance stayed with me in Sydney for six for the first six weeks, uh, which wow. which was really that would be incredible <sighs> considering you had cattle and you had land to, yeah. to run. Wow, how did you guys manage that? Um, my brother and my brother-in-law and friends of the family all pulled together to keep wow. the farm running back home. So, yeah, my mum, she had the three girls. So, yeah, it was really lucky for friends and family. Mm. And I do, I, I hear this so many times, of the, the how valuable a support system and a community around one 
not only the one that gets diagnosed, but the entire family and the entire entire support system, how it really does take a village to help carry one through this time, and that, you know, because... That's so true. Yeah. They say it takes a village to raise children and it takes a village to get through a situation like this. And it's absolutely amazing the support we received from friends and family. And not only that, the Leukaemia Foundation, because we were so far from home when we yeah. were down there to start with, um, accommodation was sort of at the pub for my family. And then the Leukaemia Foundation came through and they gave us an apartment um, for my family, which was a little two-bedroom apartment so the girls could actually come down when I was allowed out in between rounds of chemo to be able so I could actually see the girls and not just look at them through a phone. Yeah, so valuable for you and so valuable for them. Yeah, Yeah. and then um, it even brought be closer with cousins and that because they travelled from Canberra to see me and different things like that. So it was amazing to to see, like, the support network that pulled family together. Sam even had a brother that came from Switzerland to see us as well. So Oh, my God, wow. It, it was amazing that the family support network, I had three amazing girlfriends here in Dubbo that started a group chat through Facebook Messenger and every day they'd check in and it wasn't just to ask me how I was because they knew there was days where I wasn't good but it would just distract me by telling me what they were up to and how their day was and used it as a distraction for me which was really good Mm -hmm. for me because it distracted me from realising that I was just looking at four walls and a roof to that they were telling me how their life was going, which was amazing mm. to to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard from other people that I've interviewed in the podcast. They have they have voiced how they they either have those beautiful friends that pull together and come close, like it sounds like your girlfriends did, or there's those ones that almost they feel like they're forgotten about, or they just they they don't connect and touch base with them. But as but as you said, it's. People often don't know what to say, but sometimes even just by talking about what's going on in their life, that that brings that beautiful distraction to you and your four walls, as you said, doesn't it? It's so important. Yeah, it was. Like I, I had a girlfriend that um, every chance she got, she'd travel from Dubbo down to see me um, and take time out just, just to be able to come down and say hi. And I had um, another mate that was down there doing some training and things and he'd pop in and say hi at the hospital like and one day he came in and I'd actually spiked a temperature um, because I'd just Mm -hmm. finished chemo and my levels had all dropped and it really scared him to see the different side of things because he'd only been talking to me through the phone and things on good days and he was sitting beside my hospital bed when I'd spiked the temperature and (coughs) all the doctors and nurses come running in to take cultures and everything like that and he had no idea what was going on so yeah it was an eye-opener for a lot of people but without the support network there's just no physical way that anyone could possibly get through it keeps you mentally stable and um they would bring pictures down and things like that and I turned my hospital room into basically a home bedroom so I had pictures on the wall of the farm animals, cows, um, my children. My mum made me, she crocheted me a blanket for my bed Mm. and 
all the nurses and that, they'd all come in and sit down and have conversations and ask about the different pictures because each round of chemo, I would change the pictures and things like that. And they would come in and just, just have conversations. And the amazing support from the nurses and doctors in RPA was incredible. And I felt really close to my hematologist, like, um, he was he was amazing. I could ask him any questions possible and it didn't matter what it was, he would answer it or if he couldn't answer it, he would go <coughs> and find an answer for me. And mm. I found that um, knowing exactly every treatment, everything that was going on with me, I benefited from. I kept a daily journal of how I was feeling, how many bags of blood I had, how many bags of platelets I had, what my levels were, what my treatment was was to my benefit. I still look back on them to this day um, just just for my knowledge and, and yeah, to know what I was feeling back then. Yeah. And, and did it also feel like it gave you a sense of purpose too and a task? Like it kept you mentally stimulated to go, right, today, even though I may not feel like it, I'm going to pull that journal out and I'm going to write what, what, what the day unfolded, how the day unfolded for me. Did that almost like a task. Yeah, it was. So it, it was part of my task. So I had like a daily routine where I would get up and have a shower first thing of the morning. I never put a hospital gown on. I always told myself from day one that I would never put a hospital gown on because I didn't want to feel like I was in a hospital. I wanted to make myself. So I always made sure that I had loose, comfortable clothing, whether it was a nighty to a baggy t-shirt or what it was, but It was never that hospital gown. And I told the nurses, I said, if I was never able to get out of bed, get dressed myself, they would never put a hospital gown on me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it helps with your mindset too as well and your identity that that hospital gown – some yeah, people could say, oh, then I really felt like the patient and it really potentially put that, that block in the road for your motivation to get out of bed and to want to keep pushing forward. And it sounds like you very much were visually really emulating all that power and strength with all your pictures on the wall. And as you said, you, you're not getting into that hospital gown. Like you really, you know, stepped into your power of what you could and what you could control around you as well for your energy and your mental health sake as well. Yeah, and that's right. Like, and there was a lady that she got diagnosed the week exactly after me, the first round, with the exact same of leukemia, the exact same subtype and everything as me. So she went through the exact mm-hmm. same chemo and everything, mm-hmm. um, and she only lived not far from me in a different town. So she became like my mum in hospital. So if there was days where I was having bad days and didn't want to get out of bed, she would make me get out of bed. She taught Mm. me how to crochet. Um, We became really good friends through our treatment. We got out of hospital at the same time and I became really good friends with her and her husband and all her family that came to visit her. Um, Then she relapsed just before I did in 2018, she went back and had a stem cell transplant at the same time I did. She had a um, 100% match to her brother, uh, but unfortunately she passed away not long after her transplant. So, But yeah. I've still remained really good friends with her daughter and her husband. So 
it was yeah. good, but I I managed to convince my doctors that after my transplant and that, that I was well enough to come home in my 100 days after it to go to her funeral because it's what I wanted to do, which they, yeah. they allowed me to do it um, yeah. as long as I went back to Sydney afterwards. So, yeah, but it was hard to see that, that we'd gone through the exact same thing, but it was just different health issues and things that had, had changed. But, yeah. She was yeah, she was my yeah. mum in hospital as well, so it was. And sounded like your strength when you needed yeah. it as well. We were for each other. There yeah. was days where she yeah. needed support and she had the support from, from me and that, and then there was days where I needed her support and, mm. and that. But, yeah. yeah, but I kept myself busy I, drawing and, um, as I said, she showed me how to crochet and the nurses would come in and play cards with us. We... Um, would quite often sit mm. up playing cards and on that, so. Wow. And you mentioned that you had a stem cell transplant. Did I hear you say that you relapsed as well at some point? So the first lot of chemo I went through when I was first originally diagnosed, they told me that I had the best type of leukaemia you could get, the best version and everything like that, and that you, um, the chances of relap- relapsing were pretty slim. So I went through um, a high dose of chemo the first round, which was for seven days for 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And then I did five rounds of high-dact um, chemotherapy afterwards, and they told me that I would have a very slim chance of relapsing. So I got to come home after that. But only six months afterwards, I actually relapsed and got went yeah. back to Sydney where they did more chemo and radiation treatment together. And unfortunately, yeah. I had no donor match for a bone marrow transplant, for the stem cell transplant in Australia. So I didn't have one in any of my family and there was not one on the registry. So they had to do a bit more. In Australia? Yeah. So they had to do a bit more research and went through my ancestries and they actually found a double corded transplant in England and got it sent to Brisbane where they thawed it out and um, Mm -hmm. tested it because it had been been stored 60 years ago. And it tested um, that it was still fine to use. So then they sent it to Sydney and I got to have my transplant. And how was that time waiting and hearing and hearing that news? Because I can imagine that there would be some listeners that do also receive that news that they don't have a match and that there's that, I wouldn't imagine, anxiety around, oh, my God, I don't have a match. What does this mean? I was quite on edge because I was like, if I don't have a match, what happens now? What's going to happen to my children? what's our next step? And I would question, I'm a person that will ask questions and I will question my doctor and I did. I questioned Christian to no tomorrow. So I was like, what's my next option? Can I go over to America and have like the T-car cells? Is there other treatment that's out there? What? And he's like, slow down, slow down. Mm -hmm. Like we've, we've, going to do more research and things like that. Um, Then they did more testing of my brother and found Mm -hmm. out that I did have a partial 75% match to him. Uh, The only thing was I had an antibody uh, to him due to the antibody that I had to platelets. And 
this, they said that I could have it, have his transplant, but it meant that they would have to do um, take more, like take all everything out of my system and clean it all out and everything like that, and then clean, take the transplant from him and clean it all out and then be able to slowly transplant it back into me and make sure my body doesn't reject it and there's higher chance of rejection and everything like that. So not the usual process that they would like to see done? No, it was a lot longer process. So that's why they did a lot more research and that's when they found mm-hmm. the baby cords that had actually been stored. And with the- and how did you deal with that though? Like you knew that, like how, mentally, how I can just envision that that being such a trying, such a trying time for you. I was what- just like, I'm prepared to try anything for my children. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come out the other side of this star. Um, and fight for my children. And if it means that I've got to spend an extra 100 days in Sydney and go through the extra process and have my brother's mm-hmm. transplant, I will do it. If it means that I've got to go through different lot of treatment to come out the other side, I'm going to do it for my children. And... Yeah. It was, yeah, I, I had to do it for my girls and all mm-hmm. my family, my brother, my father, my fiancé, and everyone just kept saying to me, you've got to fight for your children. Um, my auntie at the time, which was my dad's twin brother's wife, was fighting breast cancer and she kept saying to me, we can get through this together, we can do this. Um so I had plenty of inspiration to, to keep seeing and saying, well, with technology in the medical system, there's there's got to be advancements out there. There's got to be something yeah. that our medical system can do. I'm not going to give up this easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who would have thought that person that donated that cord blood 60 years ago, that here, you know, fast forward 60 years, it was benefiting you and um, technology had advanced so much that it was able to be used for your transplant. That's exactly right. Incredible. Like it would be so beneficial for um, Australia to be able to have the options to for us to be able to store more baby cords and, and do things like that, mm. like they do over <laughs> in Europe and England and everything. Like there'd be so many more options out there for medical treatment. Absolutely. Wow. And and so what was it like? You, you got the news that you had this core transplant and what was, was there things that you were able to do to prepare for um, transplants or how were you feeling at that time? No. So I actually got quite ill from having the chemo and the radiation. Um, I became very weak and ill. I spent some time in palliative care from having the chemo and the radiation mm. together. Uh, I couldn't see my family for quite some time. Being Christmas time as well, I didn't even get to spend Christmas with my children or my family. Mm. So my husband and I um, had spent Christmas together in RPA, which they put on an amazing Christmas for their Mm. Level 7 patients. Um, They, they, yeah, they just put it all on for in the hospital. So we didn't actually get to celebrate Christmas until the end of January in 2019 that would have been so heartbreaking as you know as a mum you know to know that your your family your girls are going to be waking up on Christmas day without you without you there and um and you in that magic of Christmas it was um but I knew that 
my family back home was giving them the Christmas that they deserved and Santa had still come and mm. they were still having all the mm. presents and everyone had pulled together to to give them the best Christmas possible. So, yeah, it was it was really good. Like they were still having it. It was just really hard for us mm. um, doing Christmas through an iPad pretty much and, and yeah. seeing them open their presents and that. But, yeah, yeah. I was really, really weak and, and really sick at the time. So it was just there was no possible yeah. way that I could see anyone. Because mm. when did you end up having transplant then? I had my transplant at the beginning of December in 2018. So it was not just before yeah. Christmas. So you would have been in the thick of it. Like you really would have been in the thick of, yeah, your down days and your rough days in a transplant. Yes, I was. I was really, really in and in and out of out of being like I'd have a good day and sort of bad then I'd have quite a few bad days. So there there was mm. no no way like I think Christmas Day I didn't even eat anything or it's it's not a Christmas mm. that I really want to remember. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's there and they, we've moved forward from that and yeah, you sound and and from having discussing with you and and, and um, chatting with you, I should say, not discussing. Um, you sound like such a stoic person, as you said. You refused to get in the wheelchair. You were going to walk. You know, God gave gave you two feet to to walk, and that's what you were going to do. How in those moments through transplant? Because unfortunately, it does happen that you know it does kind of bring you to your knees. How did you surrender to? the feeling unwell or the needing the support or, or calling it in or did you did you call in that support of your, your fiance and the nurses I did call in the support of my um fiance and the nurses like they they would help me get out of bed and shower I still showered pretty much every day and got to change clothes and everything like that um it was the chemo on that that I'd had leading up to it meant that um, Sam had to wear like the purple gown and the gloves and everything mm. like that because he couldn't, it had come out of the mm-hmm. pores of my skin. Um, so he couldn't actually physically touch me and things like that without all, all the precautionary gear on and that. Mm. But I knew that I had to ask the nurses and things for help. There was days where I didn't get out of bed and things and they would give me a sponge bath and things like that. But I still made sure that I changed, like they changed my clothes and the sheets on the bed and everything like that because I had Mm. to keep myself feeling fresh and try and keep that positive vibe going to know that I could keep myself to see the light at the end of the tunnel it was the way that I'd look at it yeah so mentally you knew you still were able to hold on to and know the importance of bringing calling in the help and doing the things that even though you may not have particularly wanted to do like get up or have that sponge bath by someone else you still knew the importance and the value of that, that that played. That's exactly right. Like I knew that the nurses have a job to do and they're there to help us all and Mm. they're not there to make us feel like we're ill and incompetent of doing something. They're actually there to support us and to help us and make us feel good in every way. And there was a few nurses there that they would come in and they would tell me about a night that they'd have out at the pub or something that they'd done just to give me a laugh because they they yeah. knew it was something that I'd enjoy or a um, mm. couple of them had been travelling and they would come in and say, like, and there was one nurse that she had a collection of 
push bikes, but she never ever rode a push bike, didn't even know how to do it. <laughs> and but collected yeah, them in her apartment. So it was just <laughs> the things you find out when you spend lots of hours with people. That's right? it. Like, because I would spend yeah. up to four weeks at a time in the hospital before I could leave. Like, I, I wouldn't just be able to do my treatment and leave. I'd have to spend the four weeks there until my levels would recover. And because I had a platelet disorder, I couldn't leave straight away. So it would take a lot longer. Yeah. So they'd give me a platelet transfusion and my body would actually eat the platelets, not not grow. Wow. So I only had yeah. two donors in Australia that could, I could get platelets from. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you're relying on people that you've never met. I'd love to. Which I imagine. Sorry. I'd love to be you able know, to thank those people, but you'd never know who they are. You can't. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to think that you're relying on people that you – before it sounds like you were very much an independent woman and you still very much are, but to re- have to rely on the the kindness of strangers, um, yeah, is quite incredible. It is. Like my um, family and Sam's family pulled together when we first got diagnosed and they did a GoFundMe page and an auction night here in Dubbo and raised a – huge amount of money and the businesses that pull together in Dubbo and the surroundings and not only that from everywhere around that donated like we had a motorbike that was donated that they auctioned off and we had a Canberra Raiders Jersey and a Manly Seagull one and like it was incredible to see people rally together for us to support support us um, as a family uh, it was absolutely amazing. Like, and nobody knew, um, but I just finished a round of chemo. My levels had rebuilt, and we drove home just to surprise everyone on that auction night and walked in um, to see my dad cry, my brother. No one knew we walked into the auction Aww. night. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, that it that would have been incredible. Gives me shivers thinking about it for you to be able to have that moment and the town to have that moment as well. It was. It's incredible. So Yeah. And how did you miss the land? Like I imagine like, you know, you are, you're so far away. You said by car it was, you know, hours away from Sydney. Did you miss how how was the distance? Um and the pool? I'm not a city person at all, so it was quite a struggle yeah. to have people around me all the time and to be able to go places in Sydney like and everyone sort of push shove like there's no personal space um I'm used to being able to walk outside and breathe fresh air you can't do that in Sydney and miss the cows the dogs and having pets there was none of that in Sydney um but was lots of losses that yeah with the diagnosis it was it was grateful for everything that Sydney did for us but yeah it was so good to be able to come home to family friends to the farm life and um have my own personal space back and yeah have my pets Mm. back and be able to be there with my dogs and my children and life again and I even started what I call my new normal now and I was never a person that played sport before and Mm -hmm. some school friends got me into playing soccer. I had never, ever played soccer until last year and I played, started playing soccer 
and absolutely love that. So I play soccer in summer and winter in the women's comp. We actually won the grand final for the women's summer comp this year. Oh, congratulations. And... my brother's gotten me into riding a dirt bike, which is absolutely amazing. <laughs> it's a huge stress relief and enjoyment. My girls love riding motorbikes, so it's good for them and good for me as well. And I find it something that I enjoy. And yeah, so it's, it's. And I guess laying in those in the bed at, you know, you think back to those days in transplant or even those days that you were just incredibly sick and couldn't get up and you were having someone sponge bath yourself. What, what was it? It's, was it have been four years on since those moments yep, to now? Exactly. Four years, to think, four well, years in December this year. To, yeah. To think that, look how far you've come. That's true. You know, in that time. And I can imagine the day, the days seem long. I would to to get your strength back to to where to where it is now, but you know the years have they have they gone fast? What's taken place over that time? Yes and no. Like um, in the time, a lot's changed. Um, my husband and I have separated, so like I'm as I said, I'm now a single mum. Um, have been for some time now, and it's it's something that that we decided as a mutual agreement to come upon. Um, I've had a career change as well. So I changed out of real estate into financial planning and studied my graduate diploma. My body still tells me when it's tired and I need to rest and things like that. And I find that I've got to listen to my body because if I don't, I become very run down and my body just crashes. Um, Has it taken you a number of lessons to learn that? Yes. Because I know people struggle with that, that they go, oh, I'm back. I should be able to do this. I should be able to do what I did pre-life. But it takes a couple of stumbles to realise things. Yes, it did. I pushed myself when I came home in March of 2019. Um, So we got home in March 2019 to the farm. I started slowly doing things around the farm doing cattle work and that I then went back to real estate in the June 2019 so only three months mm-hmm. afterwards I went I can do this yeah. so I can go back to work <laughs> wow um and I only did it three three days a week but my body still an incredible amount <laughs> my body sort of went um you can but there was times where I sick days came about and I sort of went yeah no I've got to take it slow and steady but um, I'm now in full-time work and I quite enjoy it. But as I said, like there's days where my body says, no, you need to sleep, you need to rest. And, and that does does do that. And my girls understand the twins are seven and a half now. My eldest is 16 and I'll say to them, like, look, mum needs to have a sleep this afternoon and I'll just fall asleep anywhere. Like my body just goes, no, you can have a sleep in the car, you can have a sleep on the seat. Like, Hopefully not no, while no, you're no, driving. No, no, not while I'm driving. Like, <laughs> if someone else is driving, yeah. like my body will just, just tell me that it needs sleep. Yeah, and how is work understanding with that? Is they, do they understand that things that need to be at a different pace at times? Uh, it took me some time to actually tell work. So the company that I'm with now, it's, it? uh, and I, I only actually just recently told them. So I didn't tell, like oh, the person yeah. that I work with here in the office, I told. Um, and she knew all the time. But it, for, it took me a bit to tell head office that 
I had my diagnosis mm-hmm. and things like that, but they do understand and and are really supportive. But yeah, it did take yeah. take a few few months for me to decide how to approach to tell them. Can I can I ask why? Um, I think because it was such a big company and things like that. I just sort of wasn't sure um, because mm-hmm. we. It had just sold and been brought out by a new company and I wasn't sure how to tell the new mm. company what was going on and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, wow. And and were they it, – well, it sounds like they were supportive. Were they supportive of you once you – once you did tell them that you were that you had had a diagnosis, yes, they were. So they were really good once I told them and things like that. So yeah, that was no problems. Yeah, that's amazing. And then you said that um, you know you had the relationship breakdown, and through that time, and then to build your strength back, you overcame an incredible amount. Not only with a diagnosis, but the life life sounds like it completely changed from pre-diagnosis to now it has my life has done a complete 360 to what it was before I got diagnosed Um, but I've worked out that I'm a lot stronger person now to what I was and that I've got the strength for myself and the girls I have the support of my family from my mum and dad my brother my sister and their families I also have huge amount of support from my uncle um, which is amazing to think that I've got them. I've got some really great friends around me as well that have always mm. been there for me. And it's it, without them, I wouldn't be the person that I am today, and wouldn't be wouldn't have the strength. Mm. The girl or the lady that mm. I work with here, um, she's an amazing support as well. Like there's days where I've needed a shoulder to cry on, and she's been here many a times. Mm. My brother, yeah, um, I've hit rock bottom quite a few times, and he's picked me up. Doesn't matter where it is. We've just um, back in June. He took me away on an amazing trip through the Simpson Desert and up through to Alice Springs and back down. And yeah, yeah. it's just incredible that the support that I find that I have from my family. It's it's huge to have that. Absolutely. And do you think what accredits that to, you know, before you voiced that you were, you asked a lot of questions of your doctor and it sounds like you're a fantastic communicator. Do you, do you, um, do you accredit some of the support and the, the ability to call on, on the support when you need, because you, uh, you, you're not afraid to be open and honest with, with your, with your tribe, with your community? Yeah, no, if I couldn't be open and honest with everyone that's around me, um, I wouldn't be wouldn't be who I am today. So if, yeah, being able to ask the doctor the questions and every time I had a bone marrow biopsy before, either before or after I'd have the chemo, I would ask him to email me the results of that report. So he'd come in and tell me, but I also wanted the results emailed to me so I could read them I have them printed out yeah. and I would send them through to my family um, for them to understand as well um, exactly everything mm. so the communication was the key to keep it open to for everyone to understand exactly everything that was going on I had printouts of every type of chemo that I had, the side effects, everything. Mm. So all my family had that, my support networks, whether it was friends, family, 
everyone around me had mm. everything that, that they yeah. needed that they could understand. So if I couldn't answer a question, I had an email that I could send someone. Yeah. And it sounds like physically you had physically you you had that side of things covered, but mentally did you were you comfortable expressing to people look I'm really down like even though treatments you know you know somewhat finished you've gotten over that hurdle and you're returning back to normal life were you able to be open and honest and going but this still is really hard and this still is not what I thought life was going to look like or where the direction of life went as you say it's completely different to what um to what you walked in with i have my three really close girlfriends um that we have our group chat still going they mm-hmm. i tell them everything uh jane that i work here with she knows everything and then i have another really close girlfriend narelle that knows everything as well they are the ones that i communicate everything to and keep open and honest mm-hmm. with um and tell them everything, how I'm feeling, if I've hit rock bottom again and telling them that, like, mm. it's too hard, I didn't think it was going to be this way. They, they're the ones that know absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, so you have those people. Yeah, other than that, I don't stand out the front and scream it from the top of the street sort of thing. Yeah. It was like when I first got diagnosed, it it took me a long time. Like I told my really close girlfriends, but it took me a few weeks mm-hmm. before I actually told people that, hey, I'm not in Dubbo anymore. I'm actually sick. This is what's going on because yeah. I didn't want to tell people because I didn't want sympathy. I didn't want people saying mm-hmm. like, hey, you're sick like this, this kind of thing. Like I actually wanted people to still respect me and see me as the person that I was. Mm. Yeah, you didn't want cancer to strip away a part of your identity or, or have people or it change people's perception or approach yeah, to you. That's right. Like I, I didn't want, yeah, people mm. to to change and feel sorry for me and feel sorry for my family and things like that mm. because of what we were going through. Yeah, wow. You're incredibly strong. You're an incredibly stoic and strong um, and strong woman and to hold hold it all together and to have gone through what you've gone through um, is quite incredible. And um, are there any – we usually like to wrap up, like just being very conscious of the time. We, uh, do you, is, we usually like to wrap up the episode with some golden nuggets and you've beautifully thread through so many, you know, words of wisdom and pearlers in there. But is there anything that you could say or you would like to say to some, someone that potentially is listening who is at the start of their journey or even at the point of having finished transplant as well, thinking how is life ever going to be normal? Do you have any – any thoughts or golden nuggets, as we like to call them? Don't be afraid to ask questions to your doctors, to your hematologists, whether you're at the start or the finish of your treatment. I still have regular checkups now, like mine are still mm. every three months, um, and I still ask questions. Like I, my immune system's nowhere near up to what it should be, and I am mm-hmm. constantly asking questions of, I'm getting sick or what's this or why don't Mm -hmm. be scared like there is no silly question to ask and don't don't put it to the back of your mind because you think it is um keep a journal so if you want to look back on it or anything like that 
I keep a mm. journal still to this day of exactly everything. Do yep. you? So I keep journals of everything that I do with the children and things like that. So if anything ever does happen, my children have those journals. Um, yeah, they do. Yeah, so it's just basically I I find that that asking the questions, putting the hard word on the doctors and and finding out everything for sure, everything that they're going to do to were doing to me from treatments to transplant to transfusions to everything was I wanted to know to what tablets I was taking because you are forever taking tablets. I'm still taking them now mm. um, for how long yeah. I'm going to take them for and what's this tablet doing, why do I need it and and everything like that. Yeah. And make sure you've... Sounds like empowerment, really empowered empowered you, that, that mm. advice. And, Yes, Make sure you've got support from family and friends and the closest person to you has support as well. Um, mm-hmm. That they, I found that when we're in Sydney at times that my husband didn't have support when he needed it. Mm. So, yeah, there's make sure that if you're away from home and things like that, that you and your support person has support. Yeah. Very true because there's a number of people looking out for the patient but sometimes it's those those carers who have a mighty big load themselves it's a different load but it is a it is a mighty big load um that they yeah that they have support and and um yeah ha- have that um network looking after That's them. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Well, look, I can't thank you enough for today. You've been so beautifully raw and open and honest about your journey and um, the the wisdom that you, you've shared, I know, will really, um, really hit home for a lot of the listeners. And I think it is. It, so many people are diagnosed in rural and regional Australia and do have to get taken away, you know, from their home and from their land and come into, come into the big smoke or a different city. And it's, um, it's, it's, very much out of the norm for them and can be really quite daunting. So thank you for sharing your experience. That's right. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-620. 420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share, or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast Talking Blood Cancer. <laughs>